It's the spring of 2008. I've just moved to Athens, Ohio, and Ohio University to finish college, living on my own for the first time in my life. Getting back to school is an adjustment, as I've spent the last year off, failing out of nursing school and not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life. However, a fresh start felt like the correct answer. And so, I ventured to my dad's alma mater and a school in OU that I knew incredibly well, having grown up on the campus, essentially. Even so, I felt like a stranger in this place. Moving to a new school as a junior and not living on campus strains your ability to make friends, made even worse by the fact that I went home every weekend to work at the hospital where I was an orderly. Often, I found myself alone at night on weekdays, just trying to kill time. And I certainly couldn't study. Why would I do that? And then I remembered that I had tried World of Warcraft, and now had a real internet connection available. The thing about Appalachia, still now, but certainly then, was that the internet was non-existent. I leveled a Shadow Priest from 1 to 60 on a dial-up modem, and that same priest was now waiting for me at Ohio University on a T1 line. So, I put in the work and suddenly found myself scrambling to get geared for raiding during Burning Crusade. The one thing I had never been able to do and had wanted to do most of all. I spent a solid week in the fields of Nagrand around Hala, collecting the materials I needed for the entry-level cloth tailoring gear. It took forever, I died a lot, because it was a PvP server, um, it was a bad time. And then the night arrived. I found myself nervously standing in Deadwind Pass, looking upon the threshold of my first actual raid. The doors of Karazhan swung open, and quite literally, my life changed. This was the moment when WoW made perfect sense to me finally, like the layer of an onion being peeled away. The massive stone entryway, multiple pathways all open to the group, and the most HP I had ever seen on an enemy mob to that point as our raids started in the stables. Being in Karazhan then was entrancing, like going to a theme park built just for you and your group to explore. The place became my obsession through the spring term, as I not only collected my first full tier gear set, but also hit Exalted with a faction for the first time via Karazhan's Violet Eye rep grind. This is where my obsession with the game truly began, and if we're being honest, I routinely returned to Karazhan despite probably being able to navigate it with my eyes closed at this point. When I get burnt out, or tired of the game, or frustrated that I can't get my gear score up, I step through those doors once more, and my perspective tilts. And it reminds me of what makes World of Warcraft special, specifically to me. No piece of content in World of Warcraft better exemplifies what the game was all about than Karazhan, period. Created from pre-WoW lore, open-ended, massive in scope, unique boss encounters, and hooks to the other Burning Crusade raids, I think Kara is literally the perfect dungeon. It's certainly the best piece of content the WoW team has ever made, and one they've only come close to in quality a couple of times, in my opinion. But what makes Karazhan special? It's a lot of things to a lot of people. For some, it's the quirky raid that was originally supposed to be in Vanilla WoW, but got so big and unwieldy that the team pushed it back to the first expansion. For others, it's a hub for some of the most important lore in the Warcraft universe. And for others, its mechanics and encounters remain as some of the most memorable that Blizzard has ever put together. And most importantly to our discussion, Karazhan is a nexus point, both in the literal and fictional sense. The dark, foreboding tower was of great importance to the Legion, and specifically, Sargeras but is also called home by Medivh, one of the Warcraft universe's most confounding lore figures. Uh, did anyone else hear that? Ugh, my mics must be picking up something weird outside today. Today, on Essence of Azeroth, we're going to look at the history of Karazhan, 
its place in both the pre-WoW and World of Warcraft lore, and how, like a lot of canon in Burning Crusade, sits in a nebulous territory of having multiple origins and stories telling its tale. Join me as we crack open the front door of Castle Karazhan and delve into the specter of lore that continues to haunt its halls to this day. This is Essence of Azeroth. Today's episode and many others are brought to you by the generous contributions on our Patreon. Patreon? I don't know. Either one. Pick one. A special thanks to all of our subscribers, including Tastyphone, Rice, Orion, Daniel, Jeff, Josh, Kelly, Bergen, Melissa, Otto, and Brooke. And a special thanks to the people who have found us kind of by random recently and have subscribed. Uh, I do it all for you. <laughs> Consider giving monthly to the podcast over at www.patreon.com forward slash Essence of Azeroth and get access to our Discord, our guild on the US Asgalore server, and bonus episodes only available to subscribers, such as the Battle for Mount Hygel episode I released last week, and that is available for anybody at any tier. So once again, get on that, and that's patreon.com forward slash Essence of Azeroth. And now, a special report from Kalimdor Public Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alamdor Public Radio is brought to you by a generous contribution from the Defias Brotherhood, Mason's Union of Westfall. Fair work deserves fair compensation. And no, there is no pirate ship inside a cave with a murloc chef. You saw nothing. The Eastern Kingdoms. A real crap hole if I ever saw one. Not a single desert anywhere. Just awful. Ugly green trees. Ugh. And yet, within that horror show, lies an even greater potential evil. Our... Ugh, affiliate station, Stormwind Public Access, sends us this special report from deep within Alliance territory about the horrors that await one and all at a spooky tower called Karazhan. Mystical gateway that leads to unspeakable horror? Or a mansion full of ghosts and hot demon women. You decide. Kristoff was a normal teenager living in the woods of Elwyn Forest. He loved helping on the family farm, traveling into Stormwind, and wantonly murdering kobolds with a rusty sword. Until one day when all of that changed. According to his family, Kristoff had started hanging out with a new crowd. A darker crowd. A mysterious crowd, deep within Deadwood Pass at a foreboding mansion called Castle Karazan. We talked to Kristoff's mother, via Hearthstone, so that we didn't have to be in the same room as that country bumpkin, and her words are heartbreaking. I don't know what happened. Used to be such a good boy. Didn't talk to strangers, obeyed my every command. Then he went to that dang tower, and now we can't shut up about succubus women in live theater. It's the devil. Once known as a hotspot for the noble and elite of Stormwind, it's been decades since a tragic accident shut the doors of Karazhan forever, and its owner the playboy philanthropist Medivh vanished. And yet, the doors of Karazhan have opened once more, seeming to trap the youth of the Eastern Kingdoms in a den of debauchery and horror. We spoke to one of the succubi in question, and... It? She? They? She paints a very different story. Look, kids are going to grow up eventually. In one way or another, they'll find trouble. Isn't it better that it's with me, my demon harem, a castle full of skeleton waiters, a robot zookeeper, and a splintered portal to another dimension guarded by unspeakable horrors? No. Um, can we redo this part? I don't think I saw... Awful. Terrible. 
First as a demon harems and then what? Smoking? Supporting those awful union workers in Westfall? Kids these days are being led astray from the light and right into oblivion. Into oblivion indeed. Who's to blame? Who will hold Medivh accountable? And who's going to tell Kristoff that the new ear piercing he got at Karazin looks infected? Truly, the Eastern Kingdoms have dark days ahead. Uh, right. <sighs> this is the last time I let those Stormwind public access whack jobs on the air, even if they paid in gold. Well, maybe I'll just charge them double, because time is money, friends. Next on KPR, the Tauren Funk Power Hour. Stay tuned! In prep for this season, I've gone back and been reading the Chronicles novels that I love talking about oh so much. And one of the funny things is what does and doesn't get mentioned. After all, these books are essentially retelling the story beats of World of Warcraft, so the places or dungeons that do make the pages seem to indicate what was part of the major story arcs of each expansion. And Karazhan is not in there, completely glazed over, along with Gruul's Lair and Battle for Hyjal. The last one makes sense as, and as I mentioned in the bonus episode about Hyjal, is that the raid is in-game, but it's more of a reward for the adventurers of Azeroth, able to see how the end of the Third War played out in its own pocket dimension. However, in the case of Karazhan, we get almost no mention of the castle or Medivh in the Burning Legion chapter, besides an offhand mention about Medivh's mother, Aegwyn, joining up with Jaina Proudmoore in Theramore. And that's kind of where the Karazhan story starts. Or, I should say, yes, you guessed it, the story of Karazhan starts with- Oh, would you shut up already? Um, what? Hello? Uh, uh, hello? Yes, you, podcast boy. Do you know how tiring it is to hear you bring up the Titans each week like they're the end-all be-all? It's exhausting. And I would know. I was a fucking Titan. Whoa, language. Are you trying to get my sponsors mad? Also, Sargeras? Really? Shouldn't you be in a deep space titan prison being guarded by Illidan Stormrage for all of eternity after throwing a giant sword into Azeroth at the end of the Legion expansion? Didn't play Legion. What's that? And aren't you the one that said WoW lore is all happening all at once? I'm just choosing the canon I prefer. <sighs> Fine. While you're here, I suppose you can help us answer some questions along the way. I swear, I never wanted a co-host for this show. Shut it, nerd. Ugh, fine. If we want to be more specific, this story does actually start with Sargeras and the Burning Legion. More specifically, how the humans of the Eastern Kingdoms were attempting to deal with a new magic-based problem shortly after the Troll Wars against the Amani and the proliferation of human kingdoms. Now, this is pre-First War, so at this point, the apex of the human civilizations sits in Strom, later Stromgard, later a smoking hole in the mountains that nobody ever visits, with smaller human nations popping up everywhere, including in Dalaran. You see, during the Troll Wars, humanity gained knowledge of magic thanks to the High Elves and a deal with Quel Thalas. We'll help you end the Amani raids on Silvermoon, and in exchange, you'll teach 100 humans how to use magic. The High Elves were obviously weary of this, but literally had no other recourse if they wanted to save their city. So, humanity gained the knowledge of the Arcane, and much to the surprise of the Elves, the humans took to it instantly and proved to be exceptional. This is due to humanity's lineage from the Vrykul and the Titans. And it wasn't long until human mages were everywhere, which caused another problem to occur. It was lighting up Azeroth like an arcane Christmas tree. Mmm, yes, delicious. 
There's nothing the demons of the Twisting Nether love more than a magic abuser. We still didn't know where Azeroth was, but an influence of unwieldy magic users? That's enough to get a portal or two open, baby. Which is exactly what started happening. Suddenly, demons were back on Azeroth for the first time since the War of the Ancients, working in the shadows and playing games with the lives of politics of humanity. It wasn't long until the sudden arrival of demons plus the natural suspicion of magic users in human cities led to the mages to form their own city, a place where magic wasn't suspicious and free study of the craft was encouraged. Dalaran was born, and with it a secret order of the best mages as part of a team to hunt down and attempt to deal with the new demon threat. However, this council found that their powers individually weren't enough to deal with the likes of the Nathrezim hiding in Dalaran and causing panic and literal plague. So the mages found an ancient ritual that allowed this council to pull their powers and temporarily imbue one of them with all of the powers of the other. Yes, brilliant. A whole bunch of people giving up all their power for one person. <sighs> Humans are the worst. In this case, Sargeras isn't wrong. The Nathrism were expert tacticians and realized the best way to fight this empowered mage was to try and kill the others who gave up their power, leading to all-out disaster. This made the Dalaran Council reconsider their new trick and refine it, coming up with a new idea. The Council would need to permanently empower a mage of virtue and goodness for the good of Dalaran and all mages. They would permanently give up a part of their power to a single mage, increasing their lifespan and their power to untold heights. And so the Guardian of Tiras Fall was born, a champion to stand against and solve the demon problem created by Dalaran's own inability to curb their appetite for magic. And this started a tradition that for 100 years, a guardian would represent the council, then give up that power, and retire to a quiet existence as a reward for a job well done. And this continued for a thousand years, until the last and most powerful guardian of them all came onto the scene. The first and only female guardian and Medivh's mother, the mage Aegwyn. Born in Tirisfall, she had an affinity for magic that even as a child surpassed and surprised the best high elf mages. It wasn't long before she became an apprentice of the council and, against the wishes of the male mages vying for the title of guardian, took that mantle as well. Now, Aegwyn was brash, hot-headed, and powerful. The greatest mage to ever come from humanity, bar none. So strong, in fact, that she broke the 100-year rule and continued to serve against the Burning Legion, and in the process caught the ire of one particular loud-mouthed demon lord... Oh yes, blame me yet again. Look, she needed to be stepped on, and there's no giant boot better to suit her for the job than mine. It's not my fault she took the bait. Took the bait indeed, as Aegwyn was about to fall into the Legion's trap and set the stage for the opening of the Dark Portal, the First and Second War, and essentially all of the bad stuff that happens on Azeroth for a good long while. Almost 1,000 years before the opening of the Dark Portal, Aegwyn was about to give Sargeras his next way onto Azeroth. I'm a broke podcaster. I don't know how to say Patreon. Give me money so I can eat food. Is that me? That's you, loser. Yeah, at least I didn't get stuck inside an infant. Shut up! Uh-huh. Anyways, Aegwyn's hubris was that she thought nobody else could do the job of the Guardian, and because of that, she stayed around too long while also growing distant from the Council of Dalaran. By this point, the Council had grown corrupt and was more interested in using their shadow docket to influence the politics of the human kingdoms than they were stopping demons. They saw Aegwyn as a potential threat, but one that was loved and still doing the job. That's until Aegwyn fell into the trap of my co-host here and ran headfirst into disaster 
all the way up in Northrend. Demons were hunting the dragonflights and draining them of their energy. Sensing the danger involved, Aegwyn headed straight for Northrend and headfirst into... Me. <laughs> what an idiot. Yep. Sargeras was able to open a tear in reality and send an avatar of their likeness and power through, crash landing on Northrend and engaging Aegwyn in battle. The two fought for days before Aegwyn finally used all of her summon strength and mystical artifacts for one major attack, blasting the avatar of Sargeras and seemingly winning the encounter. However, the battle had taken all of Aegwyn's power, and little did she know that this was Sargeras' plan all along. The Demon Lord had been toying with her, and in the process, made the Guardian of Terracefall believe that she'd won the fight. In fact, she had not, and instead was weak enough for Sargeras to slip their essence into Aegwyn and begin slowly and subtly corrupting her from within. Brilliant, right? Come on, admit it. Well, it it definitely worked. Aegwyn stashed the body of the fake Sargeras within a tomb on the Broken Isles, locking it down with wards and enchantments meant to hide its massive power, thus creating the Tomb of Sargeras. This is also the same avatar that players fight in the Tomb of Sargeras raid in Legion, and certainly will not be the last time this tomb comes up. From that point, Aegwyn continues on as Guardian for centuries, though her thoughts grew to paranoia and hatred thanks to the influence of Sargeras. Likewise, the Council no longer trusted Aegwyn and saw her as a rogue agent. In response, Dalaran began to hunt Aegwyn with their own mage hunters and sought to take back their power for themselves. In response, Aegwyn found a convergence of ley lines just outside the Black Morass and Brightwood within the Eastern Kingdoms and created a massive mystical tower to not only draw upon this convergence of power, but also to hide. Castle Karazhan was born. Which brings up an interesting question, and one that doesn't appear to as of yet have a full-fledged answer in lore. Of course, we know that the Zone of Deadwind Pass is home of Karazhan. However, the lore of the Zone has two explanations for as to why everything is all dead and evilly. Pre-Legion, there really isn't an explanation in place for as to why Deadwind Pass is the way it is. He just says that in a time long ago, something happened and the tower was created. And then Aegwyn found it, and then we move on. However, and only in-game, there is another explanation that comes in the form of the Legion Warlock Class Hall questline, and an item in the Warlock home of the Dreadscar Rift, called the Tome of Blighted Implements, which describes the first Necrolite servant of Sargeras to set foot on Azeroth, Satayel, a female Eridar sent to weaken the denizens of Azeroth during the War of the Ancients. This Eridar was given a powerful artifact made from the soul of a demon on Sargeras' own prison planet of Mardoon. Ugh. Uthalish. What a prick. Lead a demon resistance against me, will ya? This seems to be a theme, as even Satayel would turn against you. Sent to weaken Azeroth, she instead used the artifact to drain the life from Deadwind Pass, and in the process created the magical nexus to the Nether that would eventually become the calling card of Karazhan. Eventually, Sargeras would point the Guardian of Terrasfall in the direction of Satayel to handle the interloper. The same Guardian would end up having Aegwyn as an apprentice. Small world. And this magical nexus is important to the Karazhan story, as it's the prime reason why the Legion is so down bad during the Burning Crusade to take it under control. But for now, Aegwyn hid in the tower, biding her time and her power while dodging both the Legion and Dalaran. However, one mage hunter named Nihilus Aran would not only find the Guardian, but also over time would come to sympathize with her. The two eventually fell in love and brought Aegwyn to a realization. She couldn't hold on to this power forever, and if she couldn't have the power of the Tears Fallen, then she'd have to pass it on to someone who could. So Aran and Aegwyn had a child. Medivh was born, and born with a flaw. That corruption of Sargeras that was within Aegwyn had passed on to her child, giving Sargeras the tool he needed to take Azeroth. 
<laughs> Kids, aren't they great? I always wanted one. And that's how I eventually destroyed the world soul of Azeroth and was finally able to take a vacation. What? I, I was in the bathroom. What'd you say? Oh, nothing. Just detailing my ultimate plans for the destruction of all life. Guess you just had to be there. <sighs> Better not have been cool. Much like how Sargeras is still hanging around this episode, they were also still hanging around the child Medivh who at this point in the story is now being trained in the way of magic by his demanding father. Aegwyn is completely gone from Medivh's life at this point, having set the powers of the Guardian on a time lock that will activate when Medivh comes of age. From here on, Aegwyn mostly leaves the story, minus one final conf confrontation, the ravages of time finally coming for the mage and slowing her down. And Medivh grows up under the harsh tutelage of his father, who is also the court magician and one of the prime magus of Stormwind. Some of which we get a glimpse of in the return to Karazhan Mythic Dungeon and Legion via the form of flashbacks. But jokes on Aran, as he must have moved while Flame Wreath was active because he's blown to bits by the explosion of Medivh's power upon him hitting puberty, killing the former mage hunter, and sending Medivh into a coma that would last until he became an adult. Kept in Northshire Abbey by his friends, Prince Lane Wren of Stormwind and Anduin Lothar, one of the high generals of Stormwind, they watched over their friend as they all kind of moved into adult age. When Medivh finally awoke, he found an inability to control his lust for using his newfound powers destructively and wantonly, including a misguided attempt at helping his friends fend off the Gurubashi troll army, killing an entire troll platoon in one fell sloop as they attacked Stormwind, igniting his arcane powers and in the process, alerting everyone with any kind of magical inclination that a new power was rising. Frightened by his new power, Medivh headed to his birthright, Karazhan, to learn how to control that power. It's here that he's taken in by the staff of Karazhan and Aegwin's former housekeeper, Morose even as Sargeras continues to twist Medivh's fears and thoughts. And a funny thing happens here. A friend who doesn't care for WoW, but does play Hearthstone, asked me a couple weeks ago about Karazhan, and if all the zany and wacky stuff that was in WoW and Hearthstone were one and the same. Because in Hearthstone, I don't know if you've seen, you know, Karazhan's kind of painted as this, like, fun 70s, like... <laughs> party time and the expansion is literally called one night in Karazhan. And the answer is that they kind of are the same thing. You see, Morose was doing his best uh, Batman Butler impersonation and wanting Medivh to get out into the world and remember that he had a place in it while also helping to keep the Dalaran council at bay. Fearing that Medivh would use his newfound power to take over Medivh takes a cue from Batman of all people and simply plays the role of a young playboy only interested in throwing parties and wasting his talent. To the council and the world at large, Medivh is simply a layabout who threw massive gatherings for nobles at Karazhan and opted to not use his inherited powers. So yeah, the silly 70s party motif that the Karazhan Hearthstone set uses is completely in canon. It's also what leads to the place being haunted. Over time, Medivh's corruption would lead him to action in trying to find a way to stop the Burning Legion. He found the divided races of Azeroth wanting, and saw need for Azeroth to have a new, bigger, and tougher race of protectors against the eventual demon armies. Little did he know that this was part of Sargeras' plan to bring their own infected army of orcs from Draenor to Azeroth. Yes, you guessed it, Medivh was going to open the Dark Portal and begin the first war, setting into motion, yes, the eventual human versus orc catastrophe. Now, it's at this point that Medivh is no longer in control of his own actions and is actively sabotaging the efforts of Stormwind to fend off the newfound orc invasion coming from the Black Morass, now the Blasted Lands, and the Dark Portal. So the rest of the magical world has felt the ripples of magic emanating from the opening of said portal. 
And with a heavy heart, Aegwyn headed to Karazhan with the blue dragon Arcanagos to try to talk sense into her son and find why he was doing the bidding of the Legion. And this is when everything goes to crap. Oh, yeah. Have you ever made a dragon extra crispy? Really cannot recommend it enough. Ugh. In a castle loaded to the gills with nobles and partiers, a now controlled by Sargeras Medivh did battle with his own mother, which includes burning the blue dragon from the inside out. This is the origins of the Karazhan boss Nightbane. Aegwyn was rebuked from the tower, but not before Medivh drained the life of everyone in Karazhan to keep Aegwyn from overpowering him. The curse of Karazhan was in place, forever to be haunted by the nobles and cursed spirits of the tower who died that night. But the cat was out of the bag. Medivh was in the palm of the Legion and would continue to do so until the end of the First War and a convergence of friends would set upon Karazhan with Anduin Lothar and Medivh's own student Khadgar striking the killing blow on a now-crazed Medivh. The release of energy from Sargeras being forced from Medivh and cursing the tower and the region with a dark energy ruined everything and leaves everything looking as cursed and dark and, you know, in general evil as it is today. This is also where the original canon states that the portal to the Twisting Nether was created. And I guess you're gonna blame me for all that, huh? Well, you did kind of cause the area to be haunted for all eternity, among other things. Look, I don't need this. I'm just trying to do my best and snuff out all of existence. It's like you don't even appreciate what I've done for you in this show. Do you even know how much it hurts to hear you start every episode talking about the Titans when I'm the one doing all the work? Uh, are you done? Besides, you're basically gone from the story at this point. Oh, right, great, because I've got other things to do. Trust me, I'll be seeing you later. <laughs> oh, good. Guess that means I'll be covering Legion at some point. <sighs> Anyways... That brings us to the Burning Crusade. The castle of Karazhan finds itself awakened as the Legion attempts to use the nether space inside as a backdoor portal to Azeroth. The Violent Eye and Dalaran send the adventurers of Azeroth in to investigate and stop the madness at all costs. But first, you gotta get the front door open. Raid attunement wasn't a new thing in WoW by this point, but Karazans could be especially punishing. To obtain the Master's Key item to permanently unlock access to Karazan, the player would need to have access to the Architraz in Netherstorm, which required flying, Shadow Labyrinth in Auchendoon, which required its key from a chest in Sethic Halls, and access to the Caverns of Time dungeon, the Black Morass, so you could go talk to Medivh, which required your entire party to have already completed the Escape from Durnhold Keep dungeon. This is all to say that a player without a guild may struggle to get each step completed in a timely manner. This requirement went away with the Cataclysm patch. Released on January 27th of 2007, Karazhan was a 10-man raid and was the first raid of Burning Crusade. You may also note that it was the first 10-man raid, but not the first 10-man dungeon. I believe that goes to Dire Maul. And much like parts of BC, Karazhan was supposed to be in Vanilla WoW originally. This was seen via the Atiesh Great Staff of the Guardian Legendary that was obtainable through Original Max Ramus, which featured a group teleport to Karazhan feature, as well as voice lines where the Shade of Aran boss fight brings up the staff if a raid member has it out. Like many things in Vanilla WoW, the developers' eyes were too big for their stomach and needed to prioritize content. Initially, Karazhan was going to be styled similarly to the eponymous castle from Castlevania Symphony of the Night, and have an like upside-down version where the layout was reversed and had an entirely different raid involved. 
This would eventually be scrapped, but you do see some of those ideas come to life in the aforementioned Warlock class Hall quest that takes place around Karazhan, as well as in the Return to Karazhan Mythic Dungeon. However, if you want to see some of this in action, go to YouTube and there are plenty of videos looking at the alpha version of Karazhan, and you can kind of see some of that for yourself, including some of the early pieces of how Hellfire Citadel was also supposed to be in Vanilla WoW. This is also why Karazhan doesn't really fit the theme and narrative of BC directly, being left out of the Chronicles book. It was supposed to take place after Nax Ramus initially. However, that was in the development phase when the idea was still that the game wouldn't have expansions, just regular raid and content updates. The Karazhan raid is big, which is another hint that it was definitely more of an in-game affair in its original design than the entry-level raid to an expansion. But it also kind of works. I routinely remember being in Kara groups that would stop at the halfway point when players were required to navigate up to the second entrance up where the curator sits. Eleven bosses await players, twelve if we're counting the random animal boss that awaits in the servants' quarters near the entrance, though if we're being honest, most groups skip to that due to its loot simply being random rerolls and not original gear. Therefore, every group started with the stables and a chance at a rare mount from Ottoman the Huntsman, the first boss. Ottoman is most likely one of, if not the leader of the Dark Riders, formerly seen in Vanilla WoW running around the zone with a zone-wide yell of the Dark Riders appear. While originally thought to be lost Death Knights from the Second War, the Riders are actually merchants that were cursed by Medivh and forced to fetch magical artifacts for him. Ottoman is as close to a pushover fight as you get in Karazhan, despite being an optional boss. However, the chance at his horse, Midnight as a mount, was more than enough for groups to always take a swing at the loot pinata, and that continues to this day, as you can still get a chance to get Midnight as a drop. Though, personally, in all of my years of doing Karazhan, I have never seen it. From here, players had options. You could either go back to the entrance and proceed to the banquet hall the traditional way, or head up the stairs from the newly unlocked blacksmith through the army quarters and up to the scullery. Fun fact, during the Wrath of the Lich King pre-launch event, this is where the limited time access hidden boss Tenris Merkblood awaited, dropping a rare bat pet mount and the original Arcanite Reaper weapon. Either path will take you to the banquet hall, and straight into the path of Medivh's former closest confidant, Morose, as well as a host of nobles turned crazy spirits, none too happy that you're disturbing their party. Back in the day, the real difficult part of this room was pulling all of the tables of elite mobs without drawing the boss or pulling more than one table, as fear abilities were rampant in this room. However, once the packs are cleared, it's time for yet another PvP-style elimination fight against the now-out-of-his-mind Morose, still thinking that everything is normal and fine, and then that you are interrupting a dinner party. Kill order was super important in this encounter, with the boss's four dinner guests possessing abilities such as mana burn, shields, heals, dispels, multiple stuns, disarm, and more. The Mana Burn caster was the real danger here, as one cast of that could remove an, a healer's entire mana bar, essentially sinking the fight, because you probably only brought two, maybe three healers to this. However, even after taking control of the adds, you still had the roguelike Morose to deal with, who could shadow step around the field and place a debilitating bleed on random enemies, as Morose wasn't tauntable and the Garot ability lasted 300 seconds or until death. Same thing. Downing Morose would lead the party over to the guest quarters, home of those succubus harems we've heard so much about on KPR, as well as an oddity within its midst. While optional, the Maiden of Virtue is a keeper a la Ironia. Smack in the middle of Karazhan. We know that Medivh has been collecting artifacts from around the world, but does this mean he also at some point found a Titan facility? Lore in Return of Karazhan says that the Maiden Virtue was attracted to Karazhan due to its debauchery and came here to punish all the wicked thoughts. I think that's funnier. 
Regardless, the Maiden possesses a number of Paladin abilities, including a consecrated ground attack that could grow in size, and worse yet, a raid-wide stun that had to be interrupted. Once done, take the stairs just out of the hallway from the swing, and head to one of the many iconic encounters within Karazhan, the Opera House. Working your way backstage, you'll have to deal with a number of wacky abilities, as well as spotlights that can give anyone that stands within it a 20% damage increase, and this could include enemies, so you had to also pull enemies out of those spotlights. Once you've worked your way to the stage, it's time to start the show with one of three randomly selected boss fights and our good friend Barnes giving us a classic introduction. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this evening's presentation. Providing parodies of Wizard of Oz, Romeo and Juliet, and the Big Bad Wolf slash Little Red Riding Hood, all three encounters had different mechanics and loot tables, along with some kind of strange quirk in gameplay. The Big Bad Wolf fight became famous for teaching players what exactly it meant to mean to kite an enemy, as the boss would randomly turn someone in the raid into Little Red Riding Hood, chasing them and killing in one hit if caught. The transformed player would have to run around a ring of the outer perimeter of the area to keep from getting chomped. Likewise, Romeo and Juliet required the raid to down both ads at the same time, lest true love brings both back to life and with a major health increase. This encounter is still worth doing to this day, I think, as all three now have rare pets that drop from the fight. And more to the point, don't you want to hear that famous line from the Big Bad Wolf? Run away, little girl! Run away. <laughs> Fun fact, the Big Bad Wolf is voiced by male porn star Lexington Steele, who also voices the Shaw of Anger. Good luck forgetting that. From this point, players would need to head outside in order to get to the second half of Karazhan, which created a natural stopping point for many raids that were attempting to pace themselves in the early days. This was also where you might lose some people in a pug group, as it required flying to get up to this door, as well as the key that Morose dropped. The Menagerie and our robot zookeeper is next, with the curator being a former Blood Elf Arcane Guardian that Medivh had tuned himself, which is the first boss in Karazhan to drop tier gear tokens. Also, it was probably the first major roadblock for pickup groups, thanks to the boss's Astral Flare phase, in which it would summon a number of flares, up to 10, that had to be killed within 10 seconds, lest they hit the entire raid with AoE damage. This phase was usually where groups failed out of Karazhan, even at the temptation of Tear Gloves, a fantastic intelligence staff, which I actually use transmog of still to the day, and yet another pet. The curator would return in a 2013 World of Warcraft comic published by DC, as one of the final productions of that deal, showcasing the origin of the Dark Riders. I believe it's called World of Warcraft Alliance. And there was also a companion piece to that, World of Warcraft Horde. From here is where Karazhan gets a little complicated, as players begin to climb the tower and contend with a number of bosses that can be done in almost any order, but each and every one of them is a pretty difficult fight. We'll start with the one that was the hardest and hardest to reach, the secret boss of Karazhan and former blue dragon Arcanagos, Nightbane. Nightbane required that at least one player had to have done the attunement and gained its summoning urn, which was a questline from within Karazhan. And this then could be placed out on the balcony of the second area, and what followed was one of the most difficult fights to date in WoW, to the point that most people considered Nightbane the actual last boss of Karazhan. This fight isn't dissimilar to Anixia, in that Nightbane has a ground phase with the typical dragon raid rules, and an air phase where he bombards the field while skeletons come to life. The kicker is that he could also char the ground underneath players, leaving a spreading like AoE damage area that just did massive amounts of damage if he stood in it for even just a little bit. Add in a routine fear ability, and a confident Nightbane attempt could quickly turn to horror in an instant. However, players were rewarded handsomely with a level 115 piece of gear, as well as an item needed for the Serpent Shrine Cavern attunement. Speaking of pains in the butt. 
assuming your group actually stopped at Nightbane, your next move would be yet another iconic encounter against the Shade of Iran. Medivh's father and haunting specter that lingers after Medivh's explosion of energy killed him long ago, Aran is trapped in the tower and reliving the tutelage that he gave to Medivh, and that frankly was kind of abusive. And while this boss is optional, it provides an all-too-pivotal teleporter from the front of Karazam proper, as well as ending the spawning of mobs between Curator and Shade. The Shade fight is standard caster boss fare, with one exception. It's Flame Wreath ability. The bane of all pickup groups, especially mine. <laughs> After a 5 second cast, Aran would create 3 fire rings around random enemies. Players moving into or out of the fire would instantly cause the entire raid to take massive damage. Worse yet, the rings could persist throughout the encounter, and it was often common to hear a raid leader use slash yell or shout in voice chat, Flame Wraith, don't move, as it was always obvious someone wasn't paying attention to directions once the entire raid got nuked. And in a mechanic not repeated since, Aran could actually run out of mana, which would cause him to polymorph the entire raid, summon a mage table, and start drinking water to get mana back. He would then do a raid-wide pyroblast. The polymorph could actually be a blessing in disguise, though, as it rapidly healed and gave mana back to everybody affected. So I remember plenty of times where it's like, oh no, I'm healing as my, sh my priest, and I'm about to, to tap on mana. Oh, thank god, I got polymorph. Two more optional bosses await players, the Satyr Terrestian Ilhuf and the Nether Dragon Nether Spite. There's not much to say about the Satyr fight, other than that he's literally hidden behind a trapdoor bookcase, and highlights that the Legion was still hiding in Karazhan all that time. As for Nether Spite, there's no real lore for why a Nether Flight Dragon is in this tower, though we can guess that he might have been attracted to it by arcane energy and Medivh's curiosity about this rare and burgeoning type of dragon. So it's entirely possible that Medivh, having spent time in Draenor slash Outland, found an egg and took it home. The fight involves a tricky mechanic where players must block beams of light from hitting the dragon and empowering it, even as those beams damage and debuff the player in question. Raid leaders would have to set up beam teams so that no one player stood in a beam for too long, while also making sure that the boss was always kept out. And now we move on to the most frustrating and iconic encounter in Karazhan. You know it, you love it, you still cannot solo it to this day, this chess event. Literally a gigantic chessboard set up by Medivh with pieces representing the OG Alliance and Horde, players will take control of chess pieces and play against a cheating Medivh, using abilities and actual chess movement to try and take out the king piece. In short, this is where almost all groups went to die for a while. The chess event was just utter malarkey, but is also the only way to reach the final in-boss area. And what's funny is that the chess event has been nerfed more after the expansion was over, more than it was during the day. While the event is much easier to handle now, it's still almost impossible to solo without luck and a little bit of coordination. The last time I did it, I had to have a member of the guild and one of my longtime friends come and help me. I hate it so much. I hate it so much that I almost wish Sargeras was back and making fun of me for it. But luckily, they have better things to do. And speaking of the Legion, the final actual boss of Karazhan is against a big, bad Eridar leader in the form of Prince Melkazar. Sitting inside the pocket of the Twisting Nether just above Medivh's bedroom, and showcasing that the Legion planned to use Karazhan as a backup staging ground for attacking Azeroth. While not a lengthy fight always, the Prince battle just has a lot of mechanics that players had to keep track of, and a lot of phases, ranging from Infernals being summoned, to a raid-wide enfeeble, to a parrying phase, a shadow nova phase, flying axes sweeping across the field, and an ability that doubles damage taken by everyone in the group. Often what happened is that things would be going great, and then boom, the entire raid was dead. It was just easy for things to randomly go south. For their troubles and for downing Prince Melkazar, the raid gets their tier helm tokens, as well as a chance at a number of legendary weapon drops 
Not actual legendaries, they were still purple, but well-known weapons. This includes the Hellscream family's Gore Howl Axe, the Light's Justice Mace, a Sun Reaver's Blood Elf Bow, and more. Funny enough, this isn't the prince the end of Prince Melkazar, though, as warlocks actually have a chance to summon the Eridar with their Nether Portal ability, along with one of his famous voice lines. You live on, you wacky prince, you. Karazhan is a wow oddity, because it was both a welcoming first raid for players in BC, but also had layers of difficulty spikes that meant many players never saw it to completion. I was lucky enough to be on a raiding guild at the time, having my sloppy priest play dragged along for victory. But even so, I still find myself returning to Karazhan regularly to walk its halls once more. In fact, as I write this, I have a tune sitting outside the castle doors, ready to try and tackle its challenges once more. It will always hold a special place for me, representing a point in time that I both miss and reflect on fondly. I would love to see Karazhan come back yet again, and if its inclusion in multiple expansions at this point as a questing area or as a breadcrumb continues, I wouldn't be surprised if we never truly see the last of Castle Karazhan. As for Medivh, what became of him? I suppose that's a tale for another time. Next time on Essence of Azeroth, we get back to the Trail of Illidan and look at his conquering of Outlands by defeating the Pit Lord Magtheridon, only to shackle the Orcs of Outland in a much similar way. How did Draenor end up this way, and what of the Orcs of Outland? We'll look at Draenor's origins, as well as the dungeons of Hellfire Citadel, and the raid encounter Magtheridon's lair. A special thanks to everybody that helped me with this massive, massive episode. There's lots of wacky stuff going on. This includes a special thanks to my friend uh, Noah for voicing character, for the returning Ash Parrish, staff writer for The Verge, for once again throwing her hat into my wacky creative ring, and two of my co-workers from esports.gg, uh, Alexandra and Olivia Richmond, who both were great sports, and I am very grateful for all the help they could provide. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It was a long one and something new that we've done, but I think it was all worthwhile. And we will be back next time, so I will see you all later. Take care. According to his family, Kristoff had started hanging out with a new crowd. A darker crowd. A mysterious crowd. <laughs>